Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Today in the podcast, we have, well, it's a debate who we have. <laughs> we have we have Casey Depart on the podcast, but, you know, looking at, looking at sort of, we were just talking about this, looking at sort of the you know, the New Orleans root of, of her name and, and my connection to sort of Nouveau Brunswick growing up on the East Coast. I still wanted to be Casey Dupar, but, uh, and she kind of does too, but, you know, the rest of the world doesn't. So we have Casey Dupar in the show, uh, but if you want to impress her, call her up and say, hello, Miss Dupar. And it's maybe soon to be Dr. Dupar. Oh, that sounds yeah. really cool. That know, sounds really cool without the T. Dr. Dupar. <laughs> See, I don't know. I think I'm thinking about it. Anyway, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad we got to finally get together. Absolutely. Yeah, there's been a, a few reschedules and then folks may notice, um, well, they probably won't notice because I talk about this with my ADHD all the time, but you may notice I'm extra hyper today because uh, I just got off a, 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 a fire department page and kind of ran in the house to start the podcast. So I'm hoping I'll start to relax short, shortly. Um, so forgive me if I'm going a little fast. <clears throat> uh, before we get started, I just want to... Uh, Acknowledge uh, that I'm producing this podcast on the lands of the Tlaman, Comox, Clayhus, and Homoko First Nations, who are one nation before we colonizer settlers came in and separated them all into the reserves, as they're called. Um, yeah, I'm just uh, just uh, grateful to be here. Oh, I suppose one thing we should acknowledge today, today is uh, February 22nd, 2023. And yesterday, um, I believe it was the... I can't remember the name of it, but I'll put it in the show notes. There's a, a First Nation on Vancouver Island near Port Alberni, which is, yeah, it's the Port Alberni Residential School, which is not that far from, from where I am. Um, probably the closest residential school to where I am. And folks have heard me talk about residential schools. These were, of course, the uh, the uh, essentially concentration camps that, uh, that uh, we put uh, Indigenous children in um, to assimilate them to our, our, our white kind of British culture. And, uh, um, uh, and, I, and and I don't use concentration camp lightly because, in fact, when I did the interview with Grant Bruno, he he reminded me that Grant Bruno was an Indigenous uh, researcher from Alberta who's got a, a an autistic son, and he was telling me about how how Hitler. I think among I think I think I was talking to someone else about this, and it sounds like it wasn't just this, but part of Hitler's inspiration for his concentration camps uh, was, were these residential schools and sort of the form of them. And so they were essentially a place of genocide. Why I bring all this up is because yesterday, uh, um, the Port Alberni Residential School, the first nation that belongs to it, which I can't pronounce right now and I won't butcher, um, um, announced uh, the results of this ground penetrating radar, and folks have heard me share about the ground penetrating radar in the past, um, which is essentially like a, <laughs> from, if you're looking at it, it looks like they're just mowing the lawn because they look like little lawnmowers, but um, uh, what they are is sort of, they're sort of like sonar, I guess, kind of thing, They'll probably work a little differently, but essentially they can see, they can see through the ground and, and get sort of, you know, images of sort of things that are out of place. And I think they found 
I'm not sure exactly what the what the what the details are on it, but essentially they 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 they've announced that they've found 67 plausible child graves on the site. Mm. Um, and this is something that's been kind of happening, you know, a lot, and and more and more of these nations are are doing these uncoverings. And I think the next plan is to uh, um, you know uh, do a ceremonial destruction of the school itself. Uh, but yeah, so it, you know, it's it's just you know. This stuff was big and popular in the news a couple of years ago uh, when the Kamloops right. Residential School kind of kind of made headlines. With 215 graves they found, and it's kind of faded away, uh, but in the news. And I think it's just important that they're still searching and they're still finding, and they're going right. to keep finding more and more of these children um, kind of buried. And so, again, if folks are listening to this and happen to, and I, and I happen to sort of maybe trigger you or, or traumatize you, you can always um, call the. Uh, the uh, uh, Indian Residential School hotline, and I should just uh, um, say that number out loud. Uh, and it is just one second here. It is one eight hundred seven two one zero zero six six. Twenty four hours a day, uh, providing supports for survivors of the residential school experience yeah uh, so once again just grateful to be able to uh, produce the podcast here so casey back to you um casey's you're she's you're all over the map um in a good way uh, 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 you're just doing lots, lots and lots of things, lots of kind of intersectionalities, I think, uh, particularly professionally, um, you know, and, 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 and a few firsts for me, I think the, the, the biggest first for me is I've never had a, a school psychologist on the show. Uh, and, and so I think that's kind of cool. Uh, I have, I have reached out to a couple more, uh, and actually do have two in the pipeline that will be coming on later. One, um, well, I won't say who, cause I don't want to, I don't want to. I don't, I don't want to curse it and have them cancel on me. So, but uh, but two folks that I think are, are pretty cool, sound pretty cool. And, and and Casey, I'll talk to you about them maybe when we turn record off, see if you know them. Um, okay. But looking forward to kind of, you know, diving more into, into sort of that area. I think school psychology, you know, maybe besides, say, speech path is is probably the one profession that really parallels a lot, I mean, with mm-hmm. our field, particularly if you're working in any kind of PBS or PBIS sort of um, realm, often the, that, that stuff is is under the sort of school psychologist versus behavior analyst, and so lots of things in common. I've, I've, I've had opportunity to collaborate at least with one school psychologist, and yeah, and, and she definitely, we knew what each other were talking about, and so that was really cool. Um but maybe just talk about um, you know, kind of you know how you got in the field and 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 uh, kind of kind of your your story your your ABA story has got to be a weird one because because <laughs> you got you got all these different all these different hats. So I don't want you to just tell me how you got an ABA. I just want to sort of t- tell me your sort of journey to where you are now because I think there's a lot of different roads that 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 we could go down, and I don't want I don't want to ruin it with with a with a too specific of a question. Okay. Well, so I married someone in the Air Force. So I was interested in finding a career that was compatible with moving every two to four years. And I wanted to do something that centered on working with students and kids and especially kids with disabilities and behavioral challenges. So I found school psychology when we were living in Italy and I met with a school psychologist there. 
And then we went back to the state, started my uh, graduate program in Maryland. And then when we moved to Texas, <laughs> I <laughs> got into another graduate program. And then that's where I was introduced to the field of ABA at University of Texas, San Antonio. So I was able, fortunately for me, aligned where I was able to graduate with the school psychology master's and then test for the BCBA exam at the same time, which I'm very, very grateful for. I know because they're there to prepare for both, but I'm glad that I got that knowledge together rather than being in the field, trying to get those BCBA hours. And we all know how fun that is. And uh, so I was able to do that at the same time. And then by the time we were moving to Utah, that's when I was already in the schools for several years. And then I got picked up for a position at the State Board of Education. And then that began my journey of getting the K-12 administration, master's and license, and then um, got into trauma on this latest move to Hawaii. So it's been about six moves in the last 17 years, right? So I picked up the certified clinical trauma professional here. Wow, that's a lot, six moves. And is there is, is is there probably more to come? Most likely, because we're not done yet. My husband, yeah. he can retire if he would like to at year 20. So we still got one more assignment to complete and probably another year or so here. Mm. So it'll be a year there and then move again mm-hmm. and another chunk. And how long are these chunks that usually then? I mean, 17 years, six places, I guess I could do the math. So what, two or three yeah, years? About two to four, two to four. The longest place I've ever lived was Utah. That was about four years. And then Italy was two, Maryland was two. So it just depends on his role. You know, he's he's primary care all day, seeing, you know, the babies and the kids, all their wellness visits and all their good stuff, physicals. So mm. it just depends on needs, always the needs of the mission. Oh, so that's what he he's a so what is so what's his role again? He's a what? He's a pediatric nurse practitioner. Oh. Right. But, but... That doesn't sound like something you'd find in the Air Force. So, so I guess it, it's it's for the the air the the sort of the Air Force kids. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think that's the thing that we both him and I have found that a lot of people don't know. It's like, oh, the military, you go, you fly planes, and you know, mm-hmm. you go shoot things, right? Like, no, there's jobs in here. You find psychologists, social workers, you have physicians. It just depends on the needs. So whenever you're recruiting or you have come in as an officer and they usually have some specialty and training before they get in or you can be enlisted and then you, they train you and you go into whatever discipline. So you have a lot of options. It's not what we've, I think a lot of us think of the military in one aspect and there's so much more you can do, especially now. Absolutely, absolutely. And so is your work the same? Are you working like with military families or? I or... work with everyone now because I'm consulting. So it's my company. I get to connect with different organizations, state organizations, like districts, schools, um, technical assistant centers. It's I wanted to build something that got to do a lot of the work that I've done throughout these moves that was able to really help, especially right now. I wanted to be able to help especially at the system level, helping schools, helping organizations, helping ABA providers with how do you navigate burnout? How do you do a lot of the the system implementation that's needed to develop your inclusion practices? How do you better get engagement? How do you improve retention? So I like kind of being a jack of all trades because I'm able to support across nationally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, I'm so sorry. So you, you did your like VCS in your school psych program. Is that what you're saying? 
Or yeah, they're my BCBA, yes. And then, you're, so in your soul, your BCBA supervision, that was in as a school psych sort of thing? Were you like doing that in schools or how'd that work? So when I did my hours, I was able to do them at the Autism Treatment Center in San Antonio, half of them there. And then I did an intensive practicum with the University of Texas San Antonio with their own Autism Treatment Center. So it was kind of cool. I got to work in a clinic separate from an institution and then I got to do my UTSA hours as well. Right, right. Yes, yeah. That's so foreign to me, the whole practicum within the program like we don't have those up here in Canada at least not that I know you know and and, you know I always I hear about like autism centers and and those sorts of things being run by all these universities and often providing like free services yeah because you know it's an academic sort of institution and Mm -hmm. and we don't don't seem to have any of that here and I I think that's uh, I'm not sure why and and maybe uh, but uh, yeah it's just it's just not not the norm up in our, our, our way so that's really cool you guys get to do that. No, I'm grateful. I was in Texas at a, a good time where I could do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you kind of you kind of talked about it a bit for a second there about the kind of like all, all the things you're working with folks on. These are kinds of the questions I was going to ask you. You know, how do you deal with turnover? How do you deal with burnout? How do you deal with right. buy-in? How do you deal with staffing? Um, before I get to that, you said K to twelve administrator. So tell me about that. Sorry, are you like, are you uh, what 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 are you doing with that sort of qualification? So I'm licensed as a K twelve administrator. Basically, you are leadership. You can be a principal. You can do district leadership. You can do state level leadership, and that's what I did. I was president of the Utah Association for School Psychologists. I chaired uh-huh. the school collaboration committee for the Utah Association for Behavior Analysis, and my most recent role with Utah State Board of Education, I was the director of equity, diversity, and inclusion. So I oversaw the entire state, about 500,000 students, 900 schools, and just supporting their equity, diversity, inclusion practices. So doing lots of training and site visits, and I've been meeting with state level leaders, working with the governor's office, you know, state institutions around what do our, our practices look like and how can we improve them? Where are those gaps? That sounds like a big job. Um, how <laughs> how, how uh, it, was it? A, was it like a? And I ask this because you know I think a lot of folks are starting to, you know, develop sort of diversity, equity, inclusion programs mm-hmm. and sorts of things. You know, a lot more sort of in the last uh, couple of years for. For, you know, kind of obvious reasons with the George Floyd murder and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was this something that the the Utah had already or were you kind of like the, the first one in this role or? I was the first one in that role for, well, I think they, I believe they had an equity specialist and someone similar to that role maybe years prior. But yeah. like you mentioned with the murder of George Floyd, there was a lot more interest in people being aware around um racism and uh, systemic racism and a lot of disparities so we'd already had a culture responsive steering committee and i was a part of that committee i was one of the leaders on that committee Mm. so when we were navigating the pandemic and navigating those uh, protests that was something that came to my leadership's attention of we probably need someone to lead this work so funding was approved and a position was created and i applied for that position and went through that process and i was able to support um all over the state so I don't, I don't want to hear like every single thing you did because I mean that's that's huge. But <laughs> sort of broadly, I guess, kind of what kinds of 
you know, as the person sort of at the top and really kind of looking at sort of all these schools and all these boards and all these programs, mm-hmm. um, sort of kind of initially kind of like, you know, maybe year one or whatever, like what kinds of things were you seeing that, 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 you know, that, that folks are doing well at, but then what kinds of things were you also seeing that, you know, where, you know, they, they really need, they really need a lot of help. They really need a lot more work here. I, like, I don't, I don't, I don't really know much about Utah and sort of about, the, mm-hmm. about sort of what's happening up there, but. So we did a lot of work with schools and districts on, we call them equity labs. We look at their data and that mm-hmm. was, it was a good way to get people started on understanding around issues around equity and those disparities. So, okay, let's look at your intergenerational poverty. If you have that data, let's look at your behavior data. Let's talk about suspensions and expulsions and um, your referrals, special education data, your retention data, high school dropouts. You're looking at, could we had a, a sharp survey, a social and emotional learning assessment, basically. Mm. We could look at that data. We could look and see who's getting into advanced placement courses and who's not. And that really kind of helped to take the emotion out of if you were coming with a yes. lot of like, uh, I'm reluctant and I have feelings and helping staff to kind of see, oh, this is where those gaps are. Here's probably why, historically why, and then here's what we can do. Just kind of helping districts to see maybe I need to think about funding a little differently and I need to think about hiring a little differently. Mm -hmm. I need to provide more schedule support here. My master schedule is not really helping the way I thought it was. And then too, with like you were referring to positive behavior interventions and support, PBIS, bolstering that up. I, I did a lot of work because prior to being the director, I was the multi-tiered system support project coordinator. And then after that, I was a behavioral supports mental health needs specialist. So I was able to support at the state level looking at, I, I can see your discipline data. I can see your referral data. And I know there's some gaps. So let's let's talk about how we're referring kids to special education and who and what does that look like? And what do those behavioral intervention plans look like? And who's being suspended and who's not? And who's being expelled and who's not? So that kind of helped to look systemically at, oh, these are the issues, these are the gaps, and here's the interventions. A lot of it is just, what do we need to do systemically? Because a lot of it was, okay, we're functioning in a silo, and these people aren't talking to each other, and these kids are falling through these cracks here. Mm -hmm. Just getting them to think about it. Wow, so that's awesome. I, mean, I love, I love, and I've and, and I've heard that a few times, a couple of times now in a couple of interviews I've done around. Um, uh, I think who was in particular that that uh, uh, Nicole Hollins, I think, was one of the ones I had on recently, and she's kind of works in that kind of PBS sort of realm, and mm-hmm. and you know, and I was like, I was like, so are you going in and just telling teachers they're racist um, and that sort of thing, <laughs> and and how's that how's that go over? And probably not so well, and. Uh, right. You know, and 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 she kind of echoed what you're saying that you not no no not definitely not doing any of that sort of thing. It's uh, it's not about sort of uh, labeling people and, and calling them names. It's about mm-hmm. look at the look at the data. No one can argue with with facts, and it, it right. takes, sort of sort of t- gets it, like you said. It takes your you may have really strong feelings about this mm-hmm. about this, and if you had to go kind of totally on your feelings, this probably would turn into a a heated. A heated right. debate, but uh, by just sharing the facts, no, it's quite clear that uh, that there's some disparities here. So I think that's really important. What what uh, sort of what were some of some of the maybe some of the bigger or or you know kind of kind of I don't know if red flags is the right word, but what were some of the big things you kind of saw in the data? You know that that told you you know. You know, the, the, we need we need to do a lot more work in this area and that sort of thing. I definitely with behavior, you can see a lot of the reactivity 
So if you were seeing certain populations were being suspended more than others, you could see, you could see that implicit bias come in. Like, oh, mm. why are these? And they're only a certain small portion of the state, but you're suspending them way more than others. And you're expelling mm. them way more than others. And um, the sharp survey data, I like that data because it came from the students. So you could see that they were trying to communicate their needs around social emotional learning that wasn't coming from us that was coming from them so mm. that was helpful in understanding like their their social awareness and their understanding of hey i don't always feel safe in certain places and here's why and mm. certain and i have relationships with certain people where i feel safe and these are other people where i don't feel so safe so that was helpful especially as we were trying to shape the social emotional learning framework as a state the data it can be very just helpful, kind of like you were saying with if you have strong emotions or if you're coming with a lot of misinformation, the data can be very helpful in just communicating. And that's what I did a lot when I worked with my um, my research team and my my data folks. It's like bring that data so when we talk to board members, they understand where this is coming from and they can kind of fill in those gaps. Mm. I think folks might be interested just to know a little bit about that survey. Can you just tell me a little bit about what the Sharp survey is, kind of how that works? So as a state, we develop a social emotional learning basically assessment. And I'm blanking on what the SHARP, S H A R P, what that stands for. But basically, yeah. yeah, but it's basically was the questions that were sent out and people could opt into districts and school leaders could opt into. We would like to collect this data and to kind of inform how we are doing social emotional learning and uh, MTSS. And before, I think even we were operationally defining what social emotional learning was. It was just kind of getting that data. And we used it when we were talking about equity, diversity, and inclusion. I think I was the EDI director, so it was equity, diversity, and inclusion. But anyway, mm -hmm. it kind of helped to foster a conversation around this is why we need, because I don't know in where you are, but in the United States, depending on where you are, there are some places that don't really want to talk about social and emotional learning and mm -hmm. think that it's something that, you know, why do we need to bring that to schools? But this, especially right now with a pandemic with so many kids navigating a lot of significant mental health needs, it's important. So we wanted to use that data to help, especially we were fifth in the nation for suicides, ages mm. 12 to 17, mm. I believe in Utah. So it was very important to us at the state level because again, we were supporting the entire state and seeing that need to collect that data. So I think it's a great idea if you have the capacity to create an assessment, working um, with your population, to see it, I think it's very helpful in developing not only the language for you, your students, your clients, whoever you're working with, but caregivers. Caregivers were always surprised by that. To I think a lot of us as adults were always surprised by what kids can actually put language to and what they're experiencing. Mm. Wow. So I just Google it, uh, and it SHARP stands for Student Health and Risk Prevention. There you go. So survey and... Uh, and as soon as you type sharp survey in Google right away, it says Utah. So you can tell it's, uh, <laughs> you can tell it's your thing. Like so that, that's yes. cool. Yeah. So definitely folks can Google that and learn a little more about that. That's really neat. So a lot of Utah here. You're in Hawaii now. So what, what, what are you doing in Hawaii like right now? What's your current roles? So like I, yeah, I'm just consulting here. Okay. <laughs> so I support, I've done work with the Hawaii Association for Behavior Analysis. Yeah. I'm just helping them with, I spoke at their conference around burnout. So that was mm. something that I spoke with their leadership. Hey, I'm seeing a lot of this come up. Is this something that you're seeing locally? And then, mm. yeah, let's, let's have a conversation. So I went to their conference and just did a conversation around burnout, what it looks like, how to prevent it, and then the system supports. I think that's a big piece of it. 
because mm. we usually want to talk about it in terms of, well, what do you need to do? You need to do more self-care. Yes. Great to do self-care and then go on vacation, but then I'm going to come right back to that same environment. Exactly. And we're a behavior analyst, so we know the environment is critical. So I really want to bolster that. Like, so how are you, how are you changing the environment so you're not having to deal with burnout as much and have all the constant turnover? Mm. What place, what practices are you putting in place? And then how are you, um, acknowledging that we are having a huge generational shift. So with the inclusion of Gen Y and Gen Z, how are you changing your support to mm. <laughs> accommodate this new population? They have different needs. We, and we're seeing that. And that's a big conversation right now, especially with quiet quitting and the great resignation. This is interesting. I've avoided talking about burnout, not so much because I don't think it's important, but more because mm-hmm. two reasons. One, I think there's a lot of people talking about burnout. There's a lot of podcasts talking about burnout. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that my conversation is going to add any more to it. I know a lot about self-care. I do a lot of it myself, and I get that. I think there's enough information out there. But I think that you touch on a really important point around the systemic sort of pieces there. So I'm wondering... Um, if you may just maybe elaborate a little more on that, like, like, like what kinds of supports are kind of, are kind of needed um, to sort of, to sort of um, deal with burnout from a systemic level. Cause I think that's really important. I've never heard anyone say that before. So what I found is a lot of leaders are like, well, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What are you, what data are you collecting? Cause I think that could drive a lot of it. Mm. It's doing climate assessments. And I've spoken about this in my own PD is, are you assessing that data? Are you getting re- feedback from your staff around what's working and what's not? And mm. can they be honest with you? And then the inclusion piece is important. It's critical because if they don't feel safe enough to talk to you and honest, mm. honestly, then you're probably not going to get good data anyway. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we need to be thinking about why that's the case and what changes need to be made in order so you can have more of that psychological safety. Yes. Um, also, to thinking about your supervision differently. How is that relationship? How are you providing support to where they know what, what is expected? Because I think a lot of the times we're not operationally defining what those expectations are. Mm. And then we're surprised when they can't meet those expectations. And I get that feedback a lot is from mm. those who are aspiring BCBAs. And, well, I didn't expect this. And I wasn't told these things. And this is not what I expected. Or people who are leaving certain uh, spaces like K-12, like, well, I went into this and this is not what I expected. And I wasn't told certain things. So mm. just being very clear about that, being clear on the family engagement piece too. How are you, are you creating tools or utilizing tools and language that is inclusive for families and mm. caregivers? I think that's a big piece of it as well, because I feel like some of the RBTs um, may feel like I'm a messenger and they don't always like what I'm saying. And how do we change the language so it's more inclusive and helpful for them? And then are we being respectful in their spaces of their values and those cultural norms that we may not understand? So I think mm. that's a lot of it plays into the burnout. It's like, what does that environment look like for everybody involved? Because if people aren't feeling validated and supported and connected, then yeah, they're going to want to leave. They're not going to stay long term. Mm. And is that because I I could I get it because I could see how like self care is, is kind of almost kind of useless there yes. you know I mean I mean it's obviously you know you you want to be able to go home and 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 not turn to the bottle and that sort of thing um, right um, uh, and and but but if day after day you're walking into this context that um, 
right. you know, you essentially can't be successful in, in part because they haven't done a good job of defining, of defining how to be successful in this environment, um, you know, and, and like those, I think, yeah, those expectations are huge. Um, and so what, what sorts of changes then do you recommend for folks as far as, as far as when they're looking, when, when they're looking at those things and, and who's making those changes? Depends on the context. I will say that mm. depending on your setting, like if you have the ability, I say work where you are. If you're in a leadership capacity, if you can collect data, do that. If you're mm. in a, if you have the capacity to do climate assessments, I think some things that we can do personally is just the familiarity. I do see this a lot. Depending on where you are, it's very hierarchical. People mm. like that, that formality, but I've seen that that formality can get in the way of trust. So people don't always feel safe to speak to you, to interact with you, because it can be so formal. My husband and mm. I talk about this a lot because he's military. So mm. in those spaces, you're like, well, this is the hierarchy, especially if they're a low power. I really try to train on intersectionality and helping people understand, feel comfortable with utilizing words like power and access and privilege. Mm. So mm. you can know, like, there's definitely a power dynamic. So your RBTs might not feel comfortable speaking to you sometimes. And teachers, mm. I've noticed this as well with teachers and special ed teachers, um, counselors, social workers, if I'm coming in and I'm this school psychologist and this behavior analyst, and some people are very honest. They're like, you have a lot of letters behind your name and it, it makes me feel things. Mm -hmm. So I've had to learn how to come in with more humanity and understanding that some people are maybe threatened or fearful of this person with all these, these um, titles and credentials. You're unfamiliar. They don't know how mm -hmm. to receive you. Especially for me, I have to be aware in some spaces I'm a Black woman. And they're not used to a Black woman with privilege and access. Mm. And I speak a certain way. And they're like, oh, you speak very differently than what I honestly, what you're fed in the media about people who look like me. So you just got to, there's a lot of variables. And that's when I, when I train on these things, I try to break it down so people can see the different layers. Because it's, it's way more than we're often speaking about it and teaching people about it. So when I've done work with institutions of higher ed, I'm like, let me look at your syllabi. Are you investigating these things? Are you helping? Because your future teachers, special ed teachers, BCBA, school psychologists will have the same dilemmas if you're not reassessing that curriculum mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that approachability thing is huge. So, right. and I think that kind of relates to this idea about sort of psychological safety. Can you tell us sort of briefly or if you can briefly, uh, <laughs> you know, not too briefly, it doesn't matter. Uh, what, what, what does psychological safety mean? Because I think, um, you know, in our field, you know, we're starting to hear, certainly if you're kind of in sort of that, you know, ACT, RFT kind of framework, you're hearing a lot about psychological flexibility. Um, mm. That seems to be a term we're hearing a lot now. Um, um, but I don't think that's the same thing. Um, um, what, what is psychological safety, number one, and mm -hmm. then, and then how do you, I mean, as a professional sort of kind of create that? Because I think, I mean, this is something, you know, that I, I, I see a lot anywhere is that, you know, folks, you know, folks just don't want to speak up. Folks just don't want to tell you what the right. problems are, you know, cause they don't, right. they don't, they're scared for, of something. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to go to www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop and enter the three secret words. 
The first secret word is school. Mm -hmm. What well, psychological safety allows room for um, honesty, honesty, because, you know, there's trust, there's trust that trust. If it is a part of that, that ecosystem, that environment, then people are more likely to feel safe speaking honestly. That's something that I've learned when you're supporting at the state level, when you're going to different settings. There's a lot of work that needs to be done because you're coming in with the whole power of the state behind you. So people are very anxious and nervous when you come sometimes. So it's something that I'm seeing, even with working with state departments, realizing that people are less likely to take risks and to innovate if they don't feel safe. If they feel their job is on the line, if they feel that you might have reprisal for something, then yeah, they're not going to make a lot of different changes. They're going to just stick to what they know they can do because this will keep me in my, keep me employed, which is very important right now. Hmm. I think being aware of what people are facing, especially navigating a pandemic, a lot of internalizing disorders, anxiety, depression. People want to know, like, do you see? And I've had staff like, can you see how challenging this is? Because these are your expectations, but these are my barriers. Do you get that, get that gulf? And I think we as leaders have to be aware of that and be able to sit with that discomfort rather than because sometimes we go into this uh, toxic positivity of, I want to just see it this way. Let's just see that. Let's, you know, and I know for me, I'm not a person that does that well. This is the reality. And I move a lot. So I see it very clearly. Like, this is the reality. I have kids that have high needs. I have kids that have a lot of intergenerational trauma, intergenerational um, poverty. And butterflies and rainbows aren't going to solve those systemic issues. Mm. So I need, you know, I, I really need clarity on here's what we can do. This is what's feasible and this is what's not. So I think with psychological safety, you need to be as leaders always modeling that because you influence and influence that and you set that tone for that climate. So I kind of think that there's got to be some agencies that you're going into where, you know, there's leadership that's been there a long time and uh and you know pretty sure they know the right way of doing things. And uh and they've really created a climate where, you know, no one feels safe psychologically, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, or, or they, or, or they, or they put on airs. They sort of say they, you know, I'm psychologically safe. This is a psychologically safe space. But yes. then when it comes this down to it, trauma informed safe. There it is. Exactly. You know, I'm an ally, you know, that's a kind I love of a, yeah. Ally. Yeah. Right. You know, so, um, uh, I'm compassionate. Mm -hmm. so, um, yeah. um, My granddaughter and, is whatever. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so what's what's the work kind of look like when you're working with folks that get, you know there ain't there's no safe there's no psychological safety there right. at all um and folks but folks still sort of think they're doing all the right things when they're clearly not well, and so they, and so they're getting a message sorry just to interrupt so no, right. so the feedback that they're getting isn't real you know they're getting the feedback that people think they want to hear sort of thing and you're seeing that a lot, especially yeah. around um, the United States. I'm sure y'all are navigating this as well. If it's something that is going to disrupt the status quo, people are going to feel uncomfortable. And we yeah. know that as behavioral analysts, as the change there, you'll have that extinction burst. Yeah. So what I've found, with, especially if you're a leader, you usually have a mission. You usually have values for that organization. So I always ask leaders, if this is your mission, and this, these are your values, 
are those behaviors and those actions in alignment with that? Mm -hmm. So I want to bring it back home. Take all the feelings and the reactivity away from it. If you're saying, okay, my mission is equity and my mission is I want to create inclusive spaces. Okay, great. And this is your, your strategic plan. All right. Then these actions, these statements, look at your, especially if you have climate assessments, if you're collecting that data around how that school feels or how that agency feels, how the organization is flowing, your data is showing you something very different. And if your staff doesn't feel safe to speak around you or people are constantly leaving and you're having to retrain mm. people and mm. rehire people, like that's costing you money. So, and I think that's, it's a good way to kind of help bring in a lot of people in who are like, well, I think I'm doing the right thing. Or they might, you might have some just obstinate people. And I've, I've had mm. to navigate that as well, especially at state levels when you are supporting board members who have very different lived experiences than the students that you're supporting. Right. So I think that can be helpful. You're going to have challenging people, especially when you're disrupting the status quo. I think that's just a part of it. I don't think that's something that we should gloss over. I think we should teach people how to navigate it. Yeah. Okay. So gosh, lots of gems in there. So, uh, <laughs> You've been mentioning, and I think some people will know what this is, but I think it's good for, I think some folks won't. I mean, some folks will think you're just talking about the weather. So um, tell me a little bit about what a climate survey is, because, you know, I might just think it, it, it's got something. Was this climate change? What are we talking about? What is a climate <laughs> survey? What's, what's that about? So what is a climate survey? And, and uh, yeah, what, 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 what is it? How's it work? How I've used them is basically to assess if I'm doing any work, especially around equity, I've used them. Schools use them as well to get a gauge an idea of how safe the schools are. Mm -hmm. um, looking at social, emotional learning, mental health, behavior. I've seen them develop around behavior, teacher training. Um, if you're looking at in, you can get certain ones that are already made. Schools have a lot of them that are already made by certain companies and mm -hmm. I've utilized those, but sometimes some organizations want to make their own. So mm -hmm. it just depends on your needs. But anyway, it's just to collect good data on where you're going as an organization and then kind of mm -hmm. help you drill down to, okay, these are where my gaps are. These are where my barriers are and then help you to make changes. If you need to make changes around professional development, if you need to make changes around hiring, I've had to help a lot of just organizations and leaders around rethinking like, okay, so who are you hiring and who's being mm -hmm. promoted and why? And have you looked at, cause I've had leaders ask me like, well, you know, Casey, my leadership doesn't look like my students. And I'm like, well, have you looked at your hiring practices? Because you're going to keep hiring the same people and they're going to keep looking very different from your your population if you don't mm. look at that. So it's just kind of, it helps to do an assessment of where you are and then kind of help you plan for where you would like to go. Yeah, yeah. And then, and, and, and so how often should you be doing those sorts of things, doing a climate survey? They're comprehensive. I recommend at least once a year. Best practice, I believe, is like twice. Like mm. you do fall, spring, schools mm. to do. But at least once a year, just so you can have good data. So when you're having those conversations around like, why don't I give these certain outcomes? Then you can look at it uh, systemically, which I like because mm. it kind of wraps in like what all your, especially coming from schools when you're looking at, okay, special ed and general education and multi-tier system of support. And you're collecting all of this data. It gives a good idea of, okay, these are some areas that I really, I didn't know. I, I had no idea that we had such disparities there. What do I need to do? Mm. Mm. Really cool. Um, 
you mentioned kind of, you know, if you see like lots of people are leaving or you got like a lot mm-hmm. of turnover, um, you know, maybe hiring practice. Um, what are, I mean, I think that seems like maybe a, 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 well, maybe not always obvious to people, but that seems like maybe mm-hmm. the most obvious sign that you're, that something's <laughs> going on, you know, everyone's leaving um, and they're leaving quick, you know. You would think. You know, you, yeah, but, but, not, but that, it isn't even, is it? Like some folks yeah. don't even sort of make that connection that it's got anything mm-hmm. to do with what they're doing. Is, is that the case mm-hmm. or do folks get that? No, because I think it's hard. And I think um, when channel Dr. Brene Brown here, there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of shame. Mm-hmm. And I think there's more work because I'm seeing the type of conversations around social emotional learning for these kids. And I'm like, yeah, we need it for the adults too. Mm-hmm. We don't have the social awareness. We don't mm-hmm. have the even the self-awareness sometimes um, with a lot of leadership. And you mentioned like, how do you navigate this with lots of um, empathy, compassion, and grace, I'm doing behavior intervention plans for adults. <laughs> That's what I get mm. to do now, which mm. is, let's have you thought about that. I'm asking lots of questions now of, if you're having people who are leaving and you're having people who um, don't feel safe talking to you, or they're asking for people to be present when they speak to you, these are red flags. So what can we, what we, what do we need to consider? What have you implemented? What strategies? And sometimes when I'm speaking, to people, like, well, I haven't even thought about that. I, I haven't even thought about what strategies I should consider or that people may not want to work here. I never even crossed my mind that they don't want to work here. I think we really do need to focus more on the adult well-being. It's no longer like, oh, uh, uh, I would like to do. Like, you know, you need to prioritize this. You need to prioritize employees being okay, staff being okay. Their wellness does matter. It's going to impact you, mm-hmm. period. Yeah. You kind of went through it a little fast there. Um, maybe just for my brain, maybe everyone else got it, but um, can you just sort of maybe reiterate besides people leaving, what are some of these other kind of red flags that, that, that you see in kind of organizations? I mean, not just related to burnout, but related to kind of, kind of all these pieces. Uh, so you have people who call out regularly work environments that a lot of hostility, a lot of tension, um, so a lot of call mis- out. You mean like call in sick or whatever? Yes. Like, oh, okay. Gotcha. Okay. And we've experienced this as behavior. And it's like, wow, they don't come to work often or <laughs> they're always calling out. Right. Um, the miscommunication. I think there's a lot of trust. If you're working in places where hyper competitive, very cutthroat mm. um, places where people don't get a lot of flexibility in their schedule that's another red flag or if you're seeing um people being hired for certain hours and they're not getting those hours i've seen that come up a lot in our field where they're mm. hired for a certain uh, a role and they had expectations for scheduling and that didn't happen that's another mm. red flag if um, there's not a lot of clarity and communication that's another one too i've mm. picked up on and is that sort of the same in, in, in the school settings as well? I mean, I, I can see oh, that yeah. in the ABA organizations, but do you see that sort of similar kind of thing happening there? Well, yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of toxic workplaces, a lot of hostile environments. Mm-hmm. And I think people are, are tired. It's exa- We're exhausted. It's like I'm losing track of years of this pandemic. But I think we do need to probably, not probably, we need to reassess our work our ideas around work, our prioritization of work and why it's the center of our lives. I think um, you're seeing a lot of conversations, especially with Gen Y is now the majority of the workforce and 
they're influencing mm. a lot of these conversations as well. And they're asking like, what, what does your work life look like during interviews, your work life balance? What is your um, diversity, equity, inclusion practices look like? There's different expectations. And I think as leaders, we need to be able to acknowledge and adjust. We're going to have to be very mindful of how mm. do we, how do we recruit from a different population that we may not be used to? I mean, a lot of us I'm finding aren't trained to, oh, I need to be mindful of the change. Like it's, it's developmental changes. So this is Gen Z and this is Gen Y and here's where they are developmentally as well. So these are their expectations, some behavioral norms to expect, these are some expectations for ourselves that we need to adjust mm. to. Well, uh, you've mentioned that a few times now, and I think this is definitely a place where I need to do some more learning. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm Gen X, um, <laughs> and uh, I can't remember. Uh, uh, I think so, and uh, um, and I've been hearing lots about sort of the, you know, the Y and the Z and the millennial mm-hmm. and whoever and all these sort of groups, and I've, I've certainly heard a lot of millennial jokes, but um, <laughs> you know how accurate yes. those are and whatever. But what 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 are sort of some of these sort of behavioral norms you're kind of talking about that that folks that are you know like so I'm. I'm, I'm 48. So, you know, kind of folks mm-hmm. are kind of in that, you know, sort of 45 and up sort of category um, who are, you know, and, and I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm not, I'm sure not the youngest in my organization, but, you know, I'm, uh, you know, there's certainly folks that are above me as well. And mm-hmm. what are some of the, what are some of the things that, that, that maybe, maybe these are assumptions, obviously there are assumptions and biases we have that, that everyone's thinking like us, but, but they're not. Um, so mm. what, what are these Y's and Y, y and Z folks, um, you know, what, what, what kinds of things do we, do we need to be considering with those folks? I think we have to be mindful that you, one person is not kind of like we talk about with kids with autism because of disabilities. Mm. They don't speak for the whole generation. There yeah. are some things that we can find. OK, this is um, something we find a pattern of, but definitely think of it in terms of correlations and not, you know, causations and all that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um there are they're expecting some transparency when it comes to salary and schedules and hours mm. and that we may not have and you know there's different access to information as well so mm. now they are they came up in the age of i have access to this information therefore mm. when i come into these spaces for work i expect you to answer my questions around again equity diversity and inclusion um mm. i want to what are you doing around social justice i've seen that come up what are you doing around mm. when can I promote? <laughs> They'll ask clearly like, okay, so if I'm staying with your your company, what does promotion look like? There is a lot more transparency that they're expecting when I'm looking at it. Cause I do, that's one of my hats is a looking at leadership and um, system level improvements, right? Mm-hmm. I think too, with Gen Y going in, that's the millennials going into um, leadership roles. They're a little different how they do leadership. And I think there's some things that, some nuggets we can pull from that. I saw someone recently, and I talked about it in one of my uh, trainings, that she went viral because her Gen Y uh, boss apologized and was like, oh, she's like, I've never had a boss do that. And it just kind of, for me, I mm. sat with that. Like, wow, this, this woman went viral because her boss had the wherewithal to acknowledge that, hey, I, wow. I did something that was harmful. I, I received that. I hold myself accountable. So I'm I'm seeing some behavioral norms that are a little different. And I'm like, okay, let's take notes from that because then we can use that for improving our climate. If, if we're really mm-hmm. concerned about keeping people and we want to keep bringing people into these fields of ABA, school psychology, you need, you need to be thinking of well, what do they want? 
And that's what we do. And we're thinking like of preference assessments or behavior intervention plans. Like, what do you, what do you want? What do you want to work for? And then, yeah, thinking about that for adults as well, mm-hmm. that they're mm-hmm. human as well. And I think we will do it for students and then we forget it for adults. I'm like, oh, yeah, you'll, you'll yeah. just show up every day. I'm like, not mm-hmm. if it's a toxic, hostile place. They won't. Mm-hmm. They'll go mm-hmm. somewhere else. Are you a BCBA supervisor looking to streamline your practice? Or maybe you're working towards your BCBA and need to find the right supervisor. Whomhouse offers tools that make supervision so much more enjoyable for both supervisor and supervisee. For supervisors, they offer easy meeting documentation, competency tracking, monthly verification forms, a built-in supervision curriculum, and so much more. For supervisees, Whomhouse has a fieldwork tracker with built-in auditing, monthly verification forms, a curriculum, quizzes, and more. If you're looking for a supervisor, they even have a supervision marketplace where you can connect with BCBAs until you find your perfect match. Kind of like professional dating. For more information, go to whomhouse.com forward slash speak or search whomhouse on Google. The second secret word is leadership. Yeah, that's something. I, you, know, uh, you know, I never really kind of thought about things that way because, you know, common sort of you know, in the organizations that I've worked in and um, is, you know, most of my work has kind of been in more kind of you know, adult, adult residential, adult care, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it tends to be, you know, from my experience, um, I think because of funding and whatnot, it, you tend to find more of the younger folks, probably more of your Y and Z folks working in, working with the kids, working, mm-hmm. working early intervention, maybe to, to a lesser extent, working in the schools. And this again, just in, in sort of where I'm at. Um, but in kind of these residential sort of settings, it tends to be folks that have been around a long time, um, you know, working for like, I've I worked like, you know, got a 35 year old living in the group home and you got the staff who has been there for 35 years, you know, quite, quite right. often, um, which, you know, on some level could be, could be a really good thing, uh, for sure, you know, for, for that consistency and long-term relationship stuff. But then what ends up also happening is in these sort of, and in, up in, in Canada, we call a lot of these sort of adult services agencies community living organizations and so in these community living organizations you have to have this yeah yeah like everywhere you got, you got this kind of hierarchy and it tends to be you know like sort of your program managers and your sort of director of sort of adult of adult services they tend to be folks that all used to work in those group homes you know back in mm-hmm. the day and they've kind of been promoted sort of up the level and what ends up happening is you kind of have this sort of this sort of um what's the word i'm looking for kind of a, a polarity of sorts where you know all, all these folks that are up in leadership are like, well, I, you know, I worked in that group home for 20 years. I I, I know how group homes work. I know how stuff mm-hmm. works. I, I, I know these clients better than anybody. You know, my way is the best way. And, and they often don't sort of, you know, um, um, you know, take the don't don't look and see these sort of fresh set of eyes as sort of having right. unique perspectives. But the other thing I think the big thing I don't think they consider is what you're saying is, is sort of these different generations, um, mm-hmm. you know, folks come in. You can't you can't plan for that. You may have known Bob, the client for 35 years, but that doesn't mean you know anything about, you know, these these young folks that are working right. with Bob and they don't they don't think the same way as we do. No. Um, you know, you say because you say words like social justice like that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it harms, you know, I mean, these mm-hmm. are not terms that I heard, you know, um, you know. 10, 15 years ago. Um, right. um, and, you know, there's a lot about sort of, you know, you know, you've, you know, 
you know, initially I had a lot of discomfort around it when the first time someone told me you, you caused harm to me. Cause I was like, what did, did I stab you? Did I, you know, did, did, <laughs> right. you know, you know, you know <laughs> did I push you off a bridge? You know, no, you know, I, I said something that was offensive mm-hmm. granted, you know, I mean, not, not to dismiss me being offensive as wrong, but how is that harm? You know, but that's just sort of my biased generation X brain going, you know, uh, the word harm is, has a different meaning to me. Um, right. um potentially you know and then social justice just seemed like a thing you know um you know that was really far-reaching something only like social sociology majors and sort of anthropologists mm-hmm. or whatever might talk about or 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 you know you know and again this is just my bias back in the day you know the feminists or whatever mm-hmm. you know would, would sort of use that term um um, um or, or or the environmental protesters or whatever and it was very sort of distant you had to be really like almost uh, almost like an extremist of sorts like a left really mm-hmm. far left to be kind of talking about these things but now these th- these terms are so common and like everyone's using them um and uh yeah that's gotta be so what, what exhausted about, yet <laughs> well yeah but, i mean that's gotta be exhausting for for these leaders as well and, they, right. and, they're, and they're like you know we just need to hire more 40 year olds and 50 year olds you know it's probably what they're thinking you know so they which like i think some places are they're like i want to stick with what i know yeah and yeah and so like where 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 do you even start with an organization that's just full of sort of and the term I think yeah the term we use is legacy staff, right, um, right? You know these are staff that have just been there for so long they're never leaving until they die, and mm. um, and 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 in fact and, and unfortunately sometimes sometimes they're they're awesome like every now and then you get the super awesome staff that's mm-hmm. been there for forty years and they're just great but more often than not they're from that sort of decade or age of sort of where, you know, where punishment was used a lot more and restrictive yes. practices were in place a lot more. And they think that's the norm. And they think that's just fine. It's just fine right. to grab Billy and move him away from the fridge anytime you want, or, 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 you know, or, or lock his seatbelt or, you know, or, or, or have a quiet room, you know, and those sorts of mm-hmm. things, you know, in the house. And, um, and it's really hard to sort of, push through that and and also we deal with and i don't and, I, and there there will be a question here and i don't know if you sort of even even have a have have some the other sort of barrier is that these staff are usually unionized mm-hmm. and so you've got these staff that are sort of you know they they these are, these are the folks with the top seniority often in right. these companies and in, in these unions and it seems just like an impossible task to sort of change the climate, I guess, of, of that right. of that organization. Now, I, I guess the first question is start with that climate survey. Um, mm-hmm. um, but um, like, is it possible to sort of, you know, change these types of, you know, make change in these types of companies? I think so. Because it doesn't happen overnight, right? And these mm. generational, it didn't happen overnight. That Oh, we just like, oh, we turn around. Oh, there's Gen Z and Gen Y. They're here now. No, they <laughs> gradually happen. And then now you have Gen Y in places of leadership. They're in positions right. of leadership. So I think it's going to take time. I think identifying the problems, I think the climate assessment is a great way to let's start thinking about yeah. this. And then let's, I, let's identify this problem. Let's analyze it. And then what are going to be our our goals for implementation and how we're going to come back and reassess. Because I think a lot of teams get excited, like, yes, Casey, I want to do a climate assessment. And then they collect all their data and they look at the data and they're like, okay, we did it. And like, okay, no, 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 no. Now, <laughs> what did the data tell us and what's our plan for implementation? And then how are we going to reassess and do that evaluation? Because you want to have that follow through. I <laughs> think it can be done. I think we, these things, especially if you've been around for a while, they can be very 
scary. Like, like you said, I don't talk, we didn't talk about social justice. And I know when I was training as a school psychologist and a BCBA, there was always conflict, at least for me, it felt like I was being trained with understanding a lot of these issues and um, multicultural competency and the schools usually say cultural responsiveness or cultural competency. That was a part of my wheelhouse when I talked to my ABA professors. They were like, ah, we don't want to talk about all that. And I can't remember the term they always used back in those days, but there was some terms like mentalisms and things mm-hmm. like that. Like, mm-hmm. we don't want to get into all of that. And y'all psychologists are always trying to do. I think it's important because you're working with humans. You need to understand humans. Mm-hmm. And the more information I get, the more helpful. So wherever that comes, I know I don't know everything. And I've always teased my colleagues. I'm like, you're going to die not knowing a lot of things. And that that makes a lot of people humble real fast. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm not going to know everything. No, you're not. So we're constantly mm-hmm. learning. That's the whole point of professional development is continuing to sharpen those tools. And I add new resources to your toolbox. So I think it can be done. But I will say there has to be a willingness. I always, when I'm training on this, like you have to have people who want to do the work rather than they're going to fight you and put up resistance the entire way like so if you can find a coalition of people who want to do it with you great we know this is going to be challenging we all are in agreement on of that but let's see how we can do this together yeah super tricky it is you know you don't know it's everything nuanced. but you don't know everything but you know a lot um, <laughs> um there's kind of two other areas i want to cover before we kind of wrap up today uh, i want to talk about uh, you talked to you when we first started. You kind of talked about this this concept of inclusive leadership. What what mm-hmm. is inclusive leadership, and why is that kind of important? To me, inclusive leadership is understanding your your audience. So you understand your organization, you understand your people that work within that organization, and you know how to modify. Just like we do as behavior analysts, we know how to modify to the needs of whoever we're working with. So I think an inclusive leader knows how to do that as well. You don't just magically become a leader and you have all the knowledge it's something you're going to always have to update Mm -hmm. and you're going to need new skills for and a lot of us now are like oh i need to understand things like what does dei mean and what's social justice anti-racism and it's intersection okay working with disabilities as queer people i need to be economically disenfranchised people historically marginalized people okay how what does that look like and now if they're a part of my workforce how do I adjust for those those needs and I make uh, better policies and supports for them and the populations that I support too? Hmm. So, uh, I guess I gotta have a you around. Like how? how like how, there, there's a lot of things that there's a lot of stuff in there that would that you know that that maybe me as sort of an organizational leader is gonna be like, eh, I don't even know where to start. You know, I mean. Um, uh, you know, and I kind of think about DEI too, you know, I think, you know, mm-hmm. we're, 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 um, our company, um, has, uh, uh, we've got, uh, a contract with a, a, a local, uh, a DEI company that's doing some really cool stuff. And we're also contracted mm-hmm. with a local, uh, indigenous, um, kind of cultural safety kind of company, uh, cause there seemed to be kind of, uh, they, it was really recommended because I mean, I think more so. In Canada, I think hopefully we start to see this more in, in the states as well. But again, as I, mm-hmm. as I started at the beginning around the whole residential school thing, um, um, just because of our demographic, a, a lot of we definitely have similar stories in terms of sort of anti-black racism in Canada. 
But I think we have even more stories around anti-Indigenous racism, right? Um, um, and just based on sort of the demographics up here, and uh, and so it's often been uh, suggested, particularly by sort of Indigenous communicate communities, you know, that you got to be careful with DEI because often the Indigenous stuff gets lost in the mix, um, mm-hmm. and and so it's it's good to have sort of a dedicated Indigenous program in your in your workplace, and then do the DEI stuff. So we we we've, we've done that. Um, but one thing that kind of, you know, and I think I knew this was going to, it was going to be this, but I think one thing that, that I think people don't always think about or expect with sort of DEI initiatives, it's not just about sort of that current issue of the time of, you know, anti-black racism. I mean, that's a big thing. That's a big piece of it. And I think there's a lot of focus there because, you know, certainly in North America, that's, you know, that's. The disparities that's, usually that's a, are that's most a giant disparity, right. and, and there's you right. know there's a lot of issues, and obviously the 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 the, the you know the, the issues with police are you don't you, know, you mm-hmm. don't see that with a lot of these other intersections, but you see it a lot with with uh, you know with black folks and indigenous folks, um, and so you you got to focus on those areas. But I don't think folks realize when they get into DEI, they're getting into everything, um, yeah. and and, uh, and and you know and it can be quite overwhelming. I've, like to your point about the climate survey, I mean, it, it's really easy for someone to do a climate survey. It's really hard to know what to do next. Right. Well, you need to prioritize. That leaders, that should be one of your skills. It's like, okay, so I may have 10. Which ones can I access? And I have the resources and the funding and the staff to target right now. Because mm-hmm. you're not going to try to attack all of them at once. That's impossible. Mm-hmm. But you want to make sure that you can prioritize. These are the ones that really know that these are... These are my huge red flags, especially if it's pertaining to inclusion or um, retention and you're losing staff and parents and like now in the age of lots of litigation. Okay, that's a lawsuit. I need to really make sure I handle that, too. Mm. So you need to prioritize. I think when especially I like that you mentioned that you're working with an indigenous organization. I, I get frustrated, too, that people want to do DEI, they're like, well, this is what DEI is. And I think it's very nuanced and you need to choose your companies wisely. You need to have Mm -hmm. very competent um, specialists that know what they're doing and that are constantly increasing their capacity. They shouldn't just like, well, I know everything so and not be constantly learning. I want someone Mm -hmm. that has humility and is constantly learning themselves Mm -hmm. and unlearning because you may have learned it incorrectly the first time or been misinformed. So I think that's helpful to make sure it's intersectional. My approach is intersectional Mm -hmm. and I do design it for the needs of that particular population. My support looks very different from Hawaii than it does in Utah, than it does in North Carolina to Texas. Every population is different. You can't, I don't like the, it looks very commercial DEI sometimes where it's just like, yeah, we're doing it. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. what does that mean? And who is it? Who is your audience? I'm always thinking of my audience because that's I'm always thinking in terms of how do you individualize it for the needs of that mm. population. Mm. You know, yeah, and thank you for acknowledging that with us. I'll do I'll do a I'm gonna do a quick plug for these folks because there's another cool thing with these folks, and I know they do work internationally as well. Mm-hmm. So our DEI company is a company called HRX. Uh, HR, couple HR, small X. Uh, they're based mm-hmm. in Vancouver. Um, uh, uh, they're a black owned company. Um, uh, um, and uh, just amazing. It took, took, me like, took me like nine months to get a proposal from them, though, because, which is great. <laughs> These EI organizations <laughs> are getting so much work now, which I'm really glad to see. Um, right. uh, but the other thing is, is 
the indigenous organization we work with is a company called Len Pierre Consulting, and I'll have this in the show notes. Uh, Len's just a really brilliant guy, indigenous guy. He's also got a, his master's in curriculum edu- uh, in education, and he's doing mm-hmm. really cool stuff. And but what was really cool, and this is just sort of for folks out there that particularly might be looking for, you know, a DEI company and an indigenous company they actually work together they're they're, they're a collab they have a collaborative relationship and and uh, it was actually len pierre that recommended hrx to us and they actually they actually do some sort of co-workshops and and so you know so you can you can actually have that sort of you know you're not going to lose anything because they're all working together um and right. uh, and i thought that was really cool so uh certainly for folks at least in canada anyway that are looking for you know, looking to kind of get into that realm i know they're both working internationally and working across the country and and they work collaboratively which is really hard to find so uh shameless plug for those folks um one more thing i wanted to get into uh was um uh you touched on it earlier and then we joked a little later about sort of all the labels that folks are using and throwing out there like, right. like, like compassion and ally and all these terms and trauma-informed um trauma-informed a big one right now it's, it's it's a huge buzzword in our field i think it's actually starting to lose a little steam because compassionate care is kind of taken over as the buzzword um, yeah. uh, but they're 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 you know they're, they're kind of similar but i think everybody there and, and their dog is now trauma-informed in, in the aba sort of autism realm Everyone mm-hmm. is trauma informed, and I say this a lot in the podcast, and folks probably think I'm just a, you know, a, a broken record here. But they're, they they all say they're trauma informed, and they all say they're neurodiversity affirming, um, and they all say they're you know, um, often they they often say they're allies. You know, they're, they're really slapping all these labels on themselves. That's one conversation in of itself, sort of the the self proclamation of all these sorts of things. Um, and I right. think sort of the the shorter answer is don't. You know, you you shouldn't need to label yourself any of these things. Um, if 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 you're doing the if you're doing good work, um, then 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 the folks you're working with will, you know, will probably acknowledge you, you know, as mm-hmm. being one of those things. And if they do, great. Mm-hmm. If they don't, you know, don't worry about it either. You know, just keep doing your work. Right. Um, and in fact, those terms are changing now. I, I mean, I've, I've heard, I have a. a, a you know the one the one sort of black one black colleague in my oh two now we have two now but in my organization um uh was telling me that you know even 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 the term ally is is maybe not all that loved and and and, and at least from her perspective uh her mm-hmm. community likes accomplice uh, sort of you know because it seems to be more action oriented but again it goes back to sort of operational definitions and that's what you were yes. kind of talking about in the beginning yes. and we have a lot of these terms but we don't really know what they mean so you're you're now a you said in Hawaii, you've now got mm-hmm. this uh, certified something, certified there's clinical a second, trauma professional. I knew there was a yes. second thing, clinical trauma professional. So mm-hmm. that seems that sounds a little more legit. Um, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know if it is, uh, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, it, it seems like, OK, well, maybe you do know something about trauma. So what, right. what maybe a couple Come on, two-part question. What what mm-hmm. is that credential? What's that about? How do okay. you get that? What's that involved? And two, what's what's it really mean to be trauma informed? Okay, so I'll explain it from my lens. Yeah. Um. So the certified clinical trauma professional, you do a training, um, an extensive training. There's an examination, and then there is a renewal required, kind of like what our BCBA, right? So, and it's only given to specific specialists who already have training. So psychologists are one of them. I'm a psychologist. Mm. I thought it'd be a great uh, thing to add because it's something that is of high need right now. I'm a school psychologist by training and I'm getting my doctoral 
program almost done. I'm getting my doctorate. So I wanted to add that knowledge for me. I think to your point, there definitely needs to be an operational definition for a lot of these because I think every time we change the language, more people kind of gleam onto it. Oh, that's the current thing to say. So I'm going to say that without actually knowing what it means. They just want to... it seems to me some people want to be perceived as these things. Yes. So I know for me, I like to have a, something that says I did some training. I know what I'm talking about and I'm not trying to be performative. That was important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, trauma-informed, basically how I've seen it implemented across settings in schools, particularly is having the awareness of the exposure to trauma and what that looks like and how it impacts kids. Right. So being aware that if you are coming from economically disenfranchised communities, you're more likely to be exposed to trauma. If you're um, a recent immigrant to the country, if you are um, of color, these Mm -hmm. students are more likely to, if you're a kid with disabilities, have exposure to trauma and how that impacts your um, your flight versus fight versus flight response. It impacts you psychologically. It Mm. impacts your brain development. I wish I'd known this years ago Mm. because now when I'm thinking about all those kids that we assess for, it it can often look like ADHD, ADD. And I'm like, oh, wow. Now understanding that history and that brain development, I would have done things differently. So I'm grateful for the understanding of it because I think with more of us becoming more aware of what trauma does to our bodies, then we can be able to make better interventions and collaborate better mm-hmm. with, especially with cross multidisciplinary teams. Schools usually best practice is to be aware of it, who's exposed to it, and then how do we in- integrate systems and create systems that acknowledge it. So definitely having a multi-tier system of support where you're supporting kids across tiers one, two, three, special ed, section 504, giving it that support, whatever that looks like across the tiers and embedding in so you know my schools we know what trauma looks like we understand what those behavioral behaviors look like and you're reassessing okay so with that knowledge I don't want to re-traumatize I want to do I want to have practices that are more trauma-informed so I'm looking at my suspensions differently my expulsions differently I am mindful of the school to prison pipeline how historic we have we have marginalized certain populations because of that so incorporating more restorative justice in as well. So kids are learning, parents are learning, um, teachers are learning, oh, this is what happens. Like we can teach, okay, so harm was done. This is how we define harm and how do we repair that? So it's, it's more systemic implementation and it's definitely looking at how do we teach these skills? How do we identify trauma, who's exposed to it, and then how do we treat, teach these skills so that long-term they know how to make repair whenever they do cause harm. So how how are you identifying? I mean, I, I, I presume it's not like uh, you're not like sort of, maybe you are, like, like are, are you asking folks like, or are you, or are you just sort of looking at sort of behaviors that, that sort of often would suggest trauma? Like how how, mm-hmm. how, how are you dealing with that? I mean, obviously I, I get for some folks, like you said, you know, if folks are people of color, if folks have a disability, right. um, you know, that there's going to be, you know, there's going to be something there, uh, but you know. Um, but you also know that I mean, every so every person with disabilities is is their own person. Right. Every, every person of color is their own person, exactly. and so on. Um, like like how 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 do you assess how do you assess trauma? You know, beyond right. you know, sort of you know, 
sitting in a counseling session asking if you've been abused or whatnot, you know? Right. Usually we find them as school psychologists as part of assessments. So whenever I'm doing a psychological evaluation, a conference, mm. special education evaluation, I will use particular assessments that help. I know ACEs is popular as well mm, um, right. to get an idea of if you have this certain ACEs scores and have an understanding of how that should yeah, yeah, impact yeah. that special education evaluation, your intervention development, your recommendations. I will say too, because a lot of people get into these trainings and like, okay, so that means everybody that I come across that has disabilities, that's a recent immigrant, like, no, mm-hmm. no, no, they're likely to be exposed mm-hmm. to trauma, to right. neglect, to violence, to say, more likely, please don't make assumptions. So as a psychologist, I know to, I'll throw, especially as I'm doing like those uh, interviews and those observations, if I'm seeing certain things, it's going to, oh, I, I might need to do an assessment looking specifically for trauma. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, you know, a lot of these practices, whether they be trauma-informed or compassionate care or, or you know, neurodiversity-affirming and, you know, all sorts of things, um, I feel like it's probably likely that they, they can't hurt to do for everyone anyway, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so... Like, like what 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 do some of those practices look like? I guess number one, we don't treat trauma as behavior analysts. I don't know if I, I'm guessing you probably don't treat it as a school psychologist. Maybe you do. Um, mm-hmm. Do you? Maybe maybe I should ask you that question. I for me, I wouldn't say well, we're treating trauma. And yeah. mine is more around like the way I frame it. If I'm doing an evaluation and I'm seeing there's yeah. a skill deficit area, I'm going to create interventions for that skill deficit area. And that's how, if it's trauma, okay, let's think about your triggers and I will help train staff on, this is a trigger for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, na- they're navigating how to identify a threat and remain self-regulated. Mm-hmm. So when you're, and I help staff understand, like when you're threatened, how do you respond? Okay, so this is a young person who's mm-hmm. not as mature as you, is not as developed as you. So you're going to have to modify how you respond as well. And that kind of helps people to, to identify, oh, hyperarousal, they are threatened, they're trying, they're struggling with self-regulating. That's how I frame it. Gotcha. What's, what's, uh, you, you said it's a training and an exam and so mm-hmm. on, but what, how, what, 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 what are you actually taking? Like, how long is it? Like, how long is the course and, um, and kind of, you know, you know, like how much, how, how much time and resources would it take someone to, to get that certification. It depends on who you do it with. I was mm. able to do it two, was it a two day just intensive? And then mm. I took an exam and then I renew every two years, a year or two. I got a little bit confused. Right. Okay. So it depends but, on where you go. Yeah. So it's a relatively short course. So, it, right, it, right. you know, and so I think, so being, you know, more trauma informed and having a little learning behind you, you know, right. it should be a fairly, like do would behavior analysts get that certification too? Or I've seen is... some have. I yep. think so. Now so I it... won't say that it's like they have certified clinical trauma professionals and they have certified trauma professionals. So depending on uh, your area difference. of expertise, right? They want to make sure that they're providing it to. Gotcha. So it might might just be the the one C for those folks and the the, you know, right, the folks right, that are right. more in the psychology or just therapist depend. realm get exactly. the clinical bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because I think I think you know if folks are kind of you know, um, maybe 
maybe hearing me say that when I tell you, you're, when I say you're trauma-informed, you're not really, or whatever, you know, you're just using a label. <laughs> well, here's how you can become trauma-informed, you know, and it's, right. it's actually not 10 years of school and a, a master's in counseling. You can you can right, get right. this training relatively, with right. relatively, you know, not a lot of time, and, and it's a good addition to the, to the thing, and that's really cool. Um, well, maybe kind of, kind of, oh, actually, two questions I actually had. Um, mm -hmm. um well, I thought we actually no, we already talked about that. So the one question I have is is just uh, kind of what you're doing now. You said you're doing, you're almost done a doctorate. What are you doing? What what, are you, what what what's that about? What are you doing your doctorate in? Where are you going? What are you taking? The third secret word is trauma. I wanted to focus on trauma and grief, so that's what I'm Ooh. focusing on, and I'm hoping to get dissertation going and looking specifically on how to create resilience as you navigate trauma and grief I maybe focus on specific professional development it needs to be done for staff within schools mm. we'll see but um that's what I'm focusing on right now hopefully being done within the next year and so what's so what's the PhD the doctorate in it's a clinical so it's a society the clinical okay. psychologist I'll be wanting to focus on grief so I think it's grief it's a grief counseling mm. trauma and grief yeah well, maybe let's just touch on that a little bit to wrap up because we didn't, you haven't talked about that at all. How did, like, yeah. first off, why, why would you, why are you focusing on that? Like, uh, and, 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 and how does kind of the grief piece kind of fit into the work you're doing? Well, I wanted to do focus on trauma and I found a program that tackled trauma and grief together. And mm. I was like, oh, that's a good pair. And what I found is that while not looking at grief, that it can be more than just death. So understanding mm -hmm. that while living through a pandemic, there's a lot of letting go of those kind of developmental milestones. So whether that's like dating mm -hmm. in person or going mm -hmm. on prom or going to college, a lot of parents are navigating now, like college is way too expensive. It's not, a, it's affordable that thought. And now you're going, you're making the decision to go and parents are having to reassess and regroup. Like, is it worth sending you now? Or, mm -hmm. you know, what does that value look like? So I learned a lot in this program that is more than just the end of life, but um, having to accept that life doesn't always go the way you expect it to as well. And the grief mm -hmm. that is a part of that too. Like a lot of people, yes, you had deaths in the pandemic, but you also had loss of mobility, loss of in-person contact, loss of maybe moving the way you expected, being able to go travel the way you expected. So and then how do you navigate those experiences? Um, especially a lot of like political unrest, civil unrest. So that pairing with trauma helped me to understand a lot of like the brain development and the coping strategies that historically we have learned. And then there's been a lot of incorporation of new research around and now be knowledgeable about the inclusion aspect and social justice and new practitioners in the field and previous knowledge and having to incorporate new research that kind of come. And I think a lot of us are, it's confronting a lot of that previous research and we as a psychologist and behavior analyst like, oh yeah, a lot of our research does come from Western educated, industrialized, rich democratic countries. Mm -hmm. And this is what we're using to generalize globally. Should we be doing that? So it's, yeah. I've learned a lot and it's challenged a lot of my thinking on how I even processed and considered grief. Yeah. So, so what, so, I mean, and again, I think you're just going back to definitions here, but what is grief? I mean, I always think of grief as just sort of, you know, sadness that mm -hmm. related to any kind of loss. 
uh, you know, right. just, not just death. Is that basically what it is? Or? Yes. Yes. It's not just death. It's broader than that. It's the processing and the reconciliation around loss and um, how to transition. That's the hard part is it can be a healthy transition in processing that grief or it can become dysfunctional. And that's usually when you need to seek a specialist. Yeah, and, and so is the idea then like what's the relate what's what's sort of the relationship? Is, is it like is grief sort of like you know the more kind of acute thing that if you don't deal with it, it turns into trauma, or 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 is does grief cause trauma, or are they just sort of two separate things that you work with together? Like what's the connection there? It depends. So especially if you're dealing with if it's complicated grief, usually that's unprocessed. You have a lot of maybe negative feelings about that situation or that mm. person, if it was a person that you lost. So then yeah. that can become complicated grief. So you're not processing it well, it's creating a disruption in your life and you might need and it's happening for a prolonged period of time. Mm. And I think recently it was one of those the disorders that came about in the most recent version of the DSM that they actually agreed when they were putting it together, like, this actually is a disorder. We need to properly recognize it and make sure that you can build properly for it. And so so what's that disorder? I want to say it's prolonged grief disorder. Oh, wow. Okay. Don't Crazy. Me. All right. Um, I want you. Yeah. Don't quote me. <laughs> no. Because uh, uh, I, I don't know anything about the DSM. Um, wow. Really cool. Yeah. You know, you're doing way more stuff than you and I talked about when we kind of had our free chat. Like, I was like, oh, this is a big good conversation. But, you know, it's probably only going to be like 45 minutes or so. I mean, right, right. You know, we're just going to talk about a little bit about leadership, a little bit about burnout. But you just got you just got your hand in like so many pots in these roles um, uh, right now. Um, so what sort of uh, I mean, obviously, the doctorate sort of, you know, the probably the, the main thing right now uh, and mm-hmm. anything else kind of on the go as far as kind of projects and whatnot. So I'm partnering with the, um, I want to say, Western Technical Assistance Center. I mean, we get their name. Mm. The Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education. And we mm. will be doing some a series of trainings beginning next month in March. So looking at cultural responsiveness, looking mm. at school refusal, um, or PBIS, and restorative practices. So it'll be April. March, April, August, and September, and I should be partnering. I partnered with Tyler Roxon on his As Told by Nomads podcast, and that should be coming out soon. And then Matt Sicoria for Behavioral Observations will have a conversation coming up soon. Okay. Um, and so the, these 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 things you're doing in March and April are these mm-hmm. sort of just for certain folks? Are these open to anyone or? They're open to anyone working. I, I want to say their target audience is those working in schools, but mental health folks, basically just looking at those topic areas, how to implement them better and strategies for navigating right now in our current climate. Right on. And so, Mark, that's coming up pretty quickly, eh? Yeah. Um, so, okay. Then maybe maybe what we want to do is... Uh, I'll post to... on my website and I'll post on my Instagram and LinkedIn. Perfect. All right, good. Wow, really cool. Wow, so much good stuff here. Um, I hope folks uh, check out some of the stuff you're doing in the spring, and uh, I, I look forward to seeing kind of what comes out of this doctorate of yours. I, I really want to, <laughs> you know, and this dissertation, and maybe when 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 you finally uh, when you finish that off, maybe we could have you back and talk about the dissertation. Oh, I would love to. Awesome, cool. 
Well, Casey Dupar or Casey Dupart, if you want. Um, uh, <laughs> thanks so much for being on the show. And hopefully next time we talk to you, it'll be Dr. Dupart. Yes, yes. I, I would be happy to come back. Thanks for having me.